Welcome to STEM Radio Hour, a podcast series that explores our emerging identities in an ever-changing world of computing and techno-science. We would like to acknowledge the financial support of the Taylor Institute for Teaching and Learning at the University of Calgary, the Imperial Oil Foundation, and the Workland School of Education. I'm your host, Dylan Perret, a PhD student in the Learning Sciences at the Workland School. You know, I was born with an intersex trait, and that was where my um, passions grew. But if you would have told me um, 10 years ago or 11 years ago now that I would be where I am today talking about intersex here with um, folks uh, on this podcast or talking uh, about intersex in my scholarly work, I wouldn't have believed you for a number of reasons. Today we're talking to Dr. George Ann Davis, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas and author of Contesting Intersex. Her research looks into the lived experiences of intersex people, the development of the intersex movement, and how medical and legal institutions affect intersex people's lives. Intersex people are born with sex characteristics that are neither typically male or female. There's some sort of combination of them. From my scholarship and from scholarship of so many others, what we know are there are no clear sex characteristics that are exclusively found in one body versus the other. So for example, um, we often thought testosterone only resides in males' bodies. We realized that wasn't the case in the 1920s, that all of our bodies have both testosterone and estrogen. Sex characteristics are the physical traits in the body that are assigned to categories like male and female. But these categories might be taken for granted and thought of as biological facts of life. We think about sex chromosomes and we know that there's a variety of sex chromosomal patterns that make sort of this very elementary um, logic that males have XY and females have XX flawed and that's just not accurate. We think about uh, external genitalia and then we realize that genitalia varies quite a bit, um, whether it's a male body or a female body, etc. There's lots of variation in genitalia. So there are no clear indicators um, what makes someone male or female. Variation in sex characteristics is a part of the natural diversity of life across species. Studies by Professor of Biology and Gender Studies Anne Fausto-Sterling have suggested that about 1.7% of the population has some variation of an intersex trait. That's almost as common as the percentage of red-haired people in the world. So then, why is intersex treated as an anomaly to be corrected? I asked her Jan. You know, I often get asked, how common is intersex? Is it, is it rare? You know, is it unique? And, and the reality is we don't have um, good, reliable estimates of intersex in the population. And the reason why we don't is because intersex people have been subjected to lies and deception, and like I was. So I think there are so many other people. I've met folks who had stories that they didn't discover they were intersex until they were 50 or 60 years old. So that's part of it. We don't have good, reliable estimates of intersex in the population. And, and the other is that people have been, you know, forcefully shamed by medical professionals to sort of not um, come out and be comfortable. And of course, there are all sorts of issues in society that make being non-binary or having an intersex trait or even gender queer or whatever it is to sort of be ashamed or stigmatized. Most babies have sex assigned to them at birth that's based on how their genitals appear. Assigning a baby's sex is a simplified and faulty way of determining sex, 
but so much weighs on this designation for how we treat people. Here's what happened to George Ann. I myself didn't know I was intersex until I was around 24 years old. And this was years after they did surgery on my body, which they did when I was 17 years old. I was, uh, you know, born in Chicago, raised as a happy, healthy baby girl, whatever those things mean. Now, it wasn't until I was a teenager running around outside um, with my friends and my brother, and I had some abdominal pain, and my mother was concerned that maybe I was getting my period, um, given my age and, and so on, and where I was having pain, which was in my abdomen. You know, she eventually took me to the urgent care center, um, and they did all sorts of tests, and they discovered that nothing was wrong with me. But in the process of discovering nothing was wrong with me, they discovered that um, internally, instead of ovaries, I had testes. And I was born without a uterus. I was born um, without a fallopian tubes. And they eventually discovered, too, that I had XY chromosomes instead of XX chromosomes. But they didn't tell Georgian this information. Georgian didn't learn this until later. That was discovered in my body, um, like so many other um, intersex people that I've um, connected with. My story is not unique. I was lied to about my diagnosis. I was just told I had uh, underdeveloped ovaries that were cancerous and that I needed to have surgery to remove them before I was 18. And thus, I was um, had those uh, ovaries removed. I'm sorry, the testes removed that I thought were ovaries when I was 17 years old. Eventually, um, years later, I got my medical records um, and was shocked to find out. Um, it was quite um, stigmatizing. I felt abnormal. I felt like a freak. I felt just, you know, messed up. Um, and I didn't understand why so many people, my doctors who I trusted and actually had a good relationship with, why they would lie or my parents, etc. Georgianne faced so much stigma that left her feeling abnormal. So I wondered what changed. What led her to speak up and to speak out about being intersex? Uh, I didn't go to pursue higher education to study intersex, but I was sitting in a classroom, a, a doctoral sociology class, reading about intersex. And it was just a unique um, experience to have listened to folks talk about intersex and theorize about intersex when I was sitting right there. And I felt that what I was reading wasn't necessarily resonating with my experiences from the past. Um, some parts certainly did, but not all of it. And I felt just increasingly uncomfortable um, to sit around a table and talk about intersex, why I myself was intersex. So I toyed around with the idea of writing a paper on intersex, uh, disclosed for the first time to close graduate school friends and my mentor advisor. So the rest is um, where, what led me to where I am today. I've dedicated these the last 10 or 12 years focusing on studying intersex and how it's experienced and contested. But I, I'm really among a group of so many other um, intersex activists and scholars in their own right, in their own regards, and I just joined that struggle. The intersex movement began in the early 90s when a group started the Intersex Society of North America. The society sought to challenge the common practice of performing unnecessary surgeries on intersex people. And the struggle is really to stop a medically unnecessary and irreversible interventions on children's bodies. It's not okay for physicians and, um, and medic other medical professionals to surgically modify children's bodies 
um, for medically unnecessary reasons. But if doctors are supposed to help people with health problems, why are these surgeries happening? Georgian says it happens when you treat intersex people as having a medical condition that needs curing. Doctors frame intersex to parents as um, a medical emergency. And when you frame something as a medical emergency, you're thereby establishing the need for an emergency medical response. And if parents of intersex children or intersex people themselves have never heard about intersex or unfamiliar with it, they likely are going to defer to that medical expertise. We afford doctors lots and lots of um, authority, as maybe we should. They went to medical school for so long. But doctors also should um, stop and reflect on what they're doing. Um, and, and that's sometimes where I think they fall short. We trust doctors to have the training to identify a medical emergency, to tell us when there's a problem in our bodies. We take their word when they say we need surgery. Georgian conducted research into how doctors treat intersex people. She found they often rely on superficial and inaccurate understandings of sex and gender. In most cases, she found doctors didn't consider whether or not a person's health was actually affected. They didn't consider what intersex people wanted for themselves. In her book, Georgian interviews doctors who treat intersex patients. One story caught my attention as an example of how some doctors shame intersex people and the families of intersex children. The doctor shares this story with Georgian. The father said, Doctor, can I ask you a question? I said, Absolutely, this is your forum. I'm at your disposal. You're hiring me. He said, Why should we do anything? And I acted physically surprised. I'm sure I did. And I said, Well... I'm concerned that if you raise this child in a male gender role, without a straight penis, he's not going to see himself as most other males, and he's not going to certainly be able to function as most other males. And the father said, well, in our family we like to celebrate our differences, and not try to be all the same, and feel the social pressure to do everything like everyone else does. I said, I do have to say one thing, and I think it's of key importance, that you both see a psychiatrist. This story frustrated me because it felt like the doctor's primary concern was not the child's physical health and how surgery would affect them. It felt like the doctor's decision was based on his own preoccupation with the child's conformity to social and biological ideals. I asked Rojan, why aren't doctors and medical associations taking more action to stop these harmful practices? Oftentimes what comes of intersex and why intersex is treated the way it is is in part because of the medical power and authority over bodies, um, it takes a lot of vulnerability for doctors to admit that what they've done or what they're doing could potentially be harmful. To me, it just seems so dang obvious. And that is, if intersex people are telling doctors, do not do these medical interventions that are irreversible, they I mean, sterilize folks. Do not do these medical interventions until one chooses to. Georgian's research also included talking to intersex people, 
The people she interviewed talked about how, in consultations, doctors focused primarily on the patient's ability to have what the doctor considered a normal gendered body and heterosexual sex. The doctors focused little of their consultations on the health risks of surgery, more often claiming that surgery minimizes cancer risks despite minimal evidence to support this claim. In Georgian's case, as for many other intersex people, surgery can mean living with long-term health conditions like brittle bones. By removing, um, in my case, the testes, the primary producer of sex hormones in the body, they thus affect my bone density in the long term. So sex hormones are often related to the, the bone density in our bodies. If we can put it in just lay terms, it would be like putting, and I, and I don't necessarily love this in, in its connotation, but like putting me into menopause when I was 17, when they removed the testes. So if you think about the average age when one goes through these hormonal changes, if you identify as an XX woman, cisgendered female, you're probably going in, in your 50s. And then um, 20, 30 years down the road, you, you, you get these same effects. Well, when you put me into that when I was 17, then just by pure mathematics, you know that by the time I'm 37, or which I am now, um, the bones have aged. But despite these complications, Georgian argues that the problem is not surgical interventions, per se. And, you know, I'm not against surgical interventions. I think that we should use our medical advancements, our technologies, to help people live the best life that they desire for themselves, but the key word being themselves. And they have to make that decision, and as it stands in medical care, intersex medical care, children are left out of the decision-making process, and their bodies are modified without their consent. And this is a problem, and a moral problem, a legal problem, an ethical problem, you name it. So the real medical issue here is about consent, the right for all people to be able to make decisions about their bodies for themselves. You know, I, re I recently published a paper, I think it's about, well, a year or two ago. It was published in a journal, A Gender and Society, and it's something I'm most proud of. But what I do in this paper is it's a collaborative paper. And I try to get at a fundamental question, and that is, how is it that intersex people are subjected to medical procedures they don't want when trans folks have to jump through hoops to get medical interventions that they may want? And I think this gets to the core of the question about medical power and authority over binary ideologies. The medical issue that Georgian and other intersex and trans people stress is the right to access or decline procedures for their own bodies. At the root of the problem, Georgian identifies binary ideologies, or ways of thinking about sex and gender as having only two options. This limits the way we think about bodies as being only male or female, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. But it also influences how we define problems in science and technology, and in turn, how science and technology shapes our understandings of sex and gender. In terms of technology in the body, it was the advancements of technology that sort of pushed along or perpetuated what we can't think of as intersex genital mutilation. Sex chromosomes weren't discovered until the 50s. In the past, historically, folks born with sex characteristics that may not have been uh, externally visible, for example, and the type of intersex trait I have, it's called complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. Now, before technology was invented, that intersex trait might never have been discovered. So technology certainly has um, been really um, powerful in the body, in, in good ways, but there are ways in which the technological advancements have been used to sort of harm groups of people. And that can be 
through maintaining particular problematic binary ideologies about sex. Changing our ideas about sex and gender to move away from binaries like male and female might feel like a huge task. But there are ways to start making small changes in our everyday actions that can help. Georgian suggests the simple change of no longer beginning events with binary language. For example, saying thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here. Instead, you might say thank you, everyone, for being here. There are also ways to advocate for changes in our everyday environments. For example, bathrooms. Because, you know, deep down I am, like I said earlier, a scholar activist, and I'm really interested in these types of things, is what can we do at our institutions, at our workplaces, wherever you're coming from? Are there all gender restrooms? Why aren't all restrooms all gender restrooms on our campuses? What are we doing to sort of dismantle the binary in, in our everyday lives? and think about new ways in which to organize them. And oftentimes I get students, well-meaning students and friends and, and just whomever, say things like, well, if we have all gender restrooms, it's a safety issue, um, you know, the big bad guy will come into the all gender restroom and hurt someone, which is, you know, not to trivialize um, these types of assaults. But my response to that is not meant to be silly, but, um, if all it takes is a, a placard, women's only, and, and that's gonna keep the big bad bully out of the bathroom, then um, wow, then I think we could get rid of all of our home security systems and just put women's only all around. So let's think about where, in what ways are our lives organized by gender that are oppressive to folks. With all of the fear and discomfort about creating inclusive environments, I wondered what Georgianne had to say about the future for intersex kids and creating inclusive classrooms. Think about the future generations and how you're going to affect that. I mean, today's intersex children, um, you know, I, I see them being more out in their classrooms. I, I recently have a paper that's forthcoming where they actually disclose their intersex status to their peers and to their teachers during um, basic education about sex difference. So, um, you know, for the longest time, doctors would say that intersex kids could not handle the diagnosis. They would interfere with their gender development, their gender identity, so on and so forth. And um, the paper is titled, The Intersex Kids Are All Right? Question mark. And, and the answer is yes, they are all right, actually. They're handling it um, quite well. And actually, and, and that shocked me. And that's why I wanted to study and focus on children themselves. So the intersex kids are all right. Their gender development is not negatively affected by discussing their intersex characteristics in the classroom. So what can we all do to support these conversations? How can we create inclusive learning environments for everyone to learn about sex and gender diversity? Georgian says small acts to educate others and raise awareness can go a long way in helping intersex people. I would encourage listeners to do one thing today. Get onto your social media, tweet about intersex. Let folks know what it is because one of the challenges that face intersex people around the world is this, this lack of visibility or this forcing people to be invisible. And I think we need a lot of allies and advocates join us in this battle uh, against, um, you know, intersex genital mutilation. So I'd encourage everyone, share something you learned about intersex today on your social media, or if not social media, in your classrooms or um, with a friend or uh, someone you can confide in. I think it'd be really important and it would help us uh, move this struggle along. I've been an activist and scholar in gender and sexuality for many years, and although intersex identities and issues may be included at times in some acronyms of gender and sexual identities, like LGBTQIA, 
and other variations, intersex people are often left out of the conversations. Each of the identities within the broader umbrella of sex, gender, and sexually marginalized groups has distinct experiences. Their issues cannot be lumped together in one acronym or one approach. Georgian's words resonated for me, despite not being intersex. While our specific stories are different, the root problem of binary sex and gender ideology produces harmful experiences for many who do not fit into societal norms. Georgian's work and the work of other intersex activists and scholars provides us with a window into the experiences of intersex people, the social stigma, medicalization, and consent violations. Their stories also show us how we can move forward as individuals, professionals, and institutions by embracing vulnerability and recognizing our mistakes and complicity so that we can do better. Assumptions about sex, gender, and sexuality are deeply ingrained in society. This shapes how we develop science and technology and the kinds of problems we set out to fix. I hope our listeners found this episode insightful and will consider taking on Georgia Ann's task to share what you learned with others. Be sure to follow us so that you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. We're on Twitter at Radio Episteme, SoundCloud at Radio Epistemology, or you can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play by searching for STEM Radio Hour. Thanks for tuning in. This is Dylan Perret, signing off. <laughs>